One of, the, one of the things that we did this past year was we went to, of all places, Guatemala. And um, about every three years or so, we try to take some college students with us to, um, to Guatemala and, um, or to another Latin American country. This was our first time there. But boy, what, a, what an amazing group of people we had the opportunity to serve. Uh, there's a church in a suburb, if you want to call it that, of Guatemala City called Barcena. And the way they do it in, in Guatemala is that they, they, um, they start outreach to children and they just love on the kids and the kids come to know Jesus and the mothers bring them. And then the, Mothers come to know the Lord, and then after a little while, the dads come to know the Lord, and then they start a church. And since land is a little pricier in uh, Guatemala than it is in Nicaragua, they'll, they'll buy a little patch and they'll put a building on it, the first floor. And in that first floor there, they'll have the church. And so that was the situation of the church that we went to. They had a, a single-story church. Well, by the time we got there, they built the walls for the second story, and then they put wooden planking uh, upon which concrete would be poured for the roof of the second story and what might become the floor for the third story. So they go up with their churches instead of out because their neighbors, you know, right next door with roosters and all kinds of things happening. And uh, <coughs> so we went there, and when we got there, there was this big uh, wooden plank uh, flooring with a forest of supporting um, studs underneath. You couldn't, you could barely walk through the second floor of the church because every two feet there was a two by four that was holding up this, this, uh, this platform. So our job was to weave together this, this metal rebar and then tie the little joints so that this stuff is absolutely rigid. And so when they poured the concrete on top of the rebar that we had woven together and tied together, um, that, that, uh, when they, after the concrete cures, they'll be able to take down all those supports and they'll have a nice rigid ceiling that, um, will be the roof for the, for the church for the foreseeable future and then perhaps the floor for another story. And um, all around Nicaragua, you see buildings with, with iron spikes sticking out of the roof. And um, Liz, this gal who's done lots of medical trips and joined our team just for the fun of it, <laughs> um, she said, we call that the iron of hope. The iron of hope, they put in place the pillars that will help anchor the next wall up. And so they're basically saying, we're not finished yet. <laughs> we're going to have a, we're going to have another floor. We're going to have more room for either our pastor to live or Sunday school rooms and, and that kind of a thing. What a privilege it was to be a part of that team. I'd like to tell you a little bit about a man named Otto de la Cruz. Um, he was an accountant 
in Guatemala back in the 70s. And he went to Florida and learned how to do the evangelism explosion um, evangelistic method. That's the one where they say, if you were to die tonight, do you know whether you would go to heaven or to hell? And if they say, I don't know, then you say, would you like to know how to... (laughs) How to be, live with God forever. And, uh, but if they say, yeah, I think I'll go to heaven. The second question is, well, what would you say to God? I mean, how would you, how would you approach him if uh, you saw him at the end of life? What would you tell him to, uh, for him to admit you into heaven? And if the answer was, well, I'm a pretty good guy. I'm a super Christian. <laughs> then you know, you need to share the gospel with him. So when, when Otto, learned how to share the gospel like that, he said, I, I, I have to do this. I have to do this. So he just started knocking on doors. Now, mind you, he had a wife, Rosa, and he had a good job as an accountant. But the more he was knocking on doors, the more people were coming to, to Christ. And the more people were coming to Christ, the more he had to shepherd them. Pretty soon he realized, Rosa, I, I, I got to quit my job. But I don't know what we're going to do. <laughs> But we have to share the gospel. And so they stepped out on faith and they came with our mission group, missions door that has campus ambassadors. Um, But to make a long story short, there are 40 churches in Guatemala that this man has been used to either start or to help start. And they have a small seminary in Guatemala City. And I mean, I'm just kind of in awe of what God has done through this man. And Jairo, who is the pastor of the Barcena Church, he is this gigantic tank of a man. But he used to work for El Chapo, the guy who just got nailed by the United States government for the havoc that he has wreaked across Latin and North America. And we shared our testimonies at lunchtime, and my wife Barbara went up to to Jairo and said, Jairo, Jairo, we want to hear your story. And he said, no, no, it's too painful. And we got a little bit of a flavor of that at the farewell service. Because he looked out on the congregation and all of us. We had almost 30 college students with us. And he said, I see all these young people from North America. And he said, my heart is breaking. Because before I became a believer... Oh, thank you. Thank you. Before I became a believer, uh, I hurt a lot of young people from North America. What I did destroyed their lives. And I can't look at young people without remembering what I did and what I was a part of. And then when I think that God sent young people from North America to help us here, I feel so unworthy. Wow. What an amazing guy. But he is a man whose church, he's, I've never seen so many husbands. in church with their families as I have in that place. And uh, praise the Lord. Wow, wow.
you know? And so that's what we're doing. We're, they're making disciples down in Guatemala. We're making disciples up here in, uh, in Oneonta. And, and may God help us as we do this work. Now, I would like, if a man gives you some water to drink, you should drink it. So thank you. Um, buckle your seatbelts, folks. We're going to rip through some scripture. Um, Psalm 19, Rakish, can we have that? <clears throat> Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you have given us your word. And your word is truth. And from your word, we know you. We understand you. We are undone by your love. We are terrified by your judgment against sin. And yet you have invited us, as Foster said, into relationship where we can, guilty as we are, stand before you without fear because you have absorbed in yourself the penalty of our sins. You have demonstrated to us the fierceness of your judgment, but the tenderness of your love. And we have salvation and redemption and relationship with you through Jesus Christ. So help us, Lord, as we think about your word today and help us to have a response to you that is worthy of your effort to communicate with us. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, Psalm 19 is a cool psalm. Well, a lot of them are cool, but, and, and, and it's usually the one I'm reading is the coolest, you know, is it, isn't it? You know, what's the favorite verse of oh, the one I'm reading right now? <laughs> but Psalm 19 has this very powerful, the first half of the psalm talks about the dazzling glory of God, how God reveals his majesty, his power, his smarts, his goodness, through the created world. So we're going to read part of that. And Romans chapter 1 says the proper conclusion from seeing the creation of God is to be dazzled by his majesty, is to be humbly aware that God is worthy of worship, that we ought to just fall on our knees and thank him for his goodness, for providing this beautiful place for us to live, difficult as it may be, and that we should not make the mistake of worshiping something in the creation. We should worship the creator instead of something else. Then the second half of that verse, or of that psalm, talks about how God has revealed himself to us in his word. And we're going to talk about the transformation inside of us when we internalize that word. So let's read it together. All right? The heavens declare the glory of God. They don't suggest it. They announce it. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. How many pictures of sunsets of outer space have you just went, you know, amazing. Next verse. Day after night they pour forth speech. Night after night they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. But you know what they're saying, right? Yet their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. Then he says, 
In the heavens, God has pitched a tent for the sun. Now you think about that. That talks about size, right? The sun, which is dazzling, he made a little tent for it. It's like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit all the way to the other. Nothing is deprived of its warmth. Wow. This is a good place that God has made for us to live, is it not? But then take a look at this. The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. Have not you been refreshed by the law of the Lord? Have not you been encouraged by his word? The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. I asked a student, what's a simple person? They were like, uh, help me. (laughs) A simple person is a person who lacks wisdom, is a person who lacks discernment. They're not evil in the sense of I hate what is right and I want what is wrong, but they they just don't know. And so their natural selfishness and curiosity lead the simple astray. But the, but the precepts of the Lord are right. They give joy to the heart. The commandments give wisdom to the simple. They give light to the eyes. Next verse. The fear of the Lord is pure. It endures forever. Now, you might be tempted to do something. And you might think, you know, just this once. But the fear of the Lord protects you from being an idiot like that, right? <laughs> the decrees of the Lord are firm, and all of them are righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. By them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great Reward, Great reward. But who can discern their own errors? So, so now this makes a little bit of a transition into not only has the word of God giving us wisdom, it's keeping us from evil, but this talks about how we need to apply the word of God deep into our hearts and mind. We need to make decisions about what is right and what is wrong, and we need to see to it that we, in spite of foolish desires to the contrary, are fully devoted to the Lord and not just doing whatever we feel like doing. So who can discern his own errors? You know, everybody thinks they're the smartest guy in the room, right? You know, we all think that we know better than other people. And you hear people talk. We're quick quick to criticize other people and say, well, they don't really know what's going on. So how are we going to discern our own errors? How are we going to... to compensate for our hidden faults, the ones that we are blind to. Next verse. Keep your servant also from willful sins. This is an appeal to God. God, don't let me go down the wrong path. God, don't let me deceive myself as to what's right and what's wrong. I don't want to be ruled by willful sins. And if I can do that, then you will help me, Lord, to be blameless and innocent of great transgression. May these words of my mouth and this meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock 
and my Redeemer. Wow, that's pretty, pretty powerful. Following Jesus is an information-rich experience. You can't just say, I want to be a good person from here on out, because we don't know what good is. And, and oftentimes when push comes to shove, we rationalize this, we rationalize that. Proverbs 3, 7 says, do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and shun evil. Jesus on more than one occasion says this, truly, truly, I say to you. What does that mean? It means, listen up, guys. What I'm telling you is true. It's the real deal. And if you don't believe me, you're going to regret it. That's kind of the Chris Deemer translation. (laughs) But in John chapter 14, verse 21, I think that's, here's an invitation of Jesus. Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. So that means we need to know the commands of Jesus and we need to keep them. The one who loves me will be loved by my Father and I will love them as well and I will show myself to them. Wow, how about that? The words of God are lively. They are true. And we keep them And we obey them because we love him. And we love him because he first loved us. And he wants us to know him. He wants us to understand him. And then we're in, as as Foster said, in relationship with him. Now, Paul lays this out for Timothy in several little uh, verses in 2 Timothy, and I want us to look at them together to talk about how we ought to embrace and use and respond to the Word of God in our own lives. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 13, we find out that, that the Christian gospel and the truth that comes along with it in the Bible is a, a pattern of sound teaching. What you heard from me, Paul is saying to Timothy, keep as the pattern of sound teaching. In other words, there's teaching that matches the pattern of the Bible, and there's teaching that does not matter, that, that does not match. And, and what uh, we need to do is we need to make sure that we don't make adjustments or improvements in the message of God so that they might be heard by people. So it's a call to courage. It's a call to integrity, and it's a call to right understanding. So instead of, instead of buckling under to pressure, we need to be courageous and strong. What you heard from me, keep as the pattern of sound teaching with faith and love in Christ Jesus. And verse 14, guard the good deposit as it was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. Now think about this. There's, I know people say, well, the letter, the, the letter is death and the spirit is life. But we need to understand when, when it comes to the Bible, how do we have the Bible? The Holy Spirit inspired those writers to give us a record that now the Holy Spirit helps us to understand and then to live. 
So it's the Holy Spirit and it's the Word of God working together that changes our lives. Next verse. 2 Timothy 2.15, the Apostle Paul is saying to Timothy, you need to do your best, which means effort. Grace is not opposed to effort. The grace of God invites effort. The grace of God does not respond to our attempt to merit God's love. We acknowledge our need for God's love, and then we seek him uh, with all of our effort. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. Well, how would a person... How would a worker be ashamed? Well, if you don't use your tools right, if you don't complete the task, if you're not careful with what you're doing. Uh, one of the things that we had to do was, on this uh, work project down in Guatemala, is that we had to take this um, thin metal flashing and tack it down between the gaps between the boards so that when the concrete, the liquid concrete, was poured onto this platform, it wouldn't leak down into the, you wouldn't have stalactites coming down, you know, from the ceiling. So uh, to, to neglect to do what was our clear responsibility would have caused us to be ashamed. But in the case of somebody who's studying the Word of God, you need to let God tell you what the Word of God means and not make it up for yourself. And I'm going to illustrate that a little bit later, if time uh, allows, about marriage. Our culture today has ideas about what marriage is and what it can be and what it should be. And the Bible has some different ideas about what it is, what it can be and what it should be. And if we're going to read our Bibles carefully, and if we're going to guard the good deposit and hold on to it, then we are going to to learn from what God has to say about that relationship rather than taking our cues from the culture around. So we need to do our best to be careful to not mismanage the, the teaching of the Bible and misapply it to life. Next verse. Okay, this is, uh, this is perhaps more familiar to most of us, but it again visits this idea. The truth of God is deep and multifaceted. There's a lot to learn. There's a lot that we can get confused about. So we need to be willing to be open to rebuke. We need to be willing to, to be corrected in our understanding of it. And we're intended to to um, offer God an obedience over time. So you have the idea that the scripture is good for teaching, showing us the way, rebuking, pointing out our errors, correcting, helping us to get back on track, and training in righteousness so that we can be characterized not by spontaneous obedience, but by continual obedience, a, a true transform transformation of character and of our understanding about how to live. Next. <coughs> Excuse me. He's saying here, oh, 
Well, the purpose being that the servant of God, this learning, correcting, rebuke, uh, rebuking, and training in righteousness, will be so that we can then be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now, you think about one of the recent uh, sort of innovations in marriage law has created a whole class of people who could never hope to have children on their own. So the market for surrogacy, does anybody know what that is? Where a woman is hired to carry a baby to term. Well, my land. This sounds like, hey, you know, not a problem. But I think we have been given wisdom that says, wait, 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 wait. This may not actually be in the best interests of even the people who want to do this or in the people who would come into existence through this. And so God has given us wisdom to offer counsel. Now, people may or may not listen to what we have to say, but God gives us what we need so that we can do the good works that he has set before us, even if those particular instances aren't specifically speak, spoken to in the Bible. Okay, next. Once we become informed and become a people of the word, then we can have these kinds of conversations. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome. We're not given the Bible just so that we can argue with each other about it. We're given the Bible so that we might know God better. And so the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, not spoiling for an argument, but kind, able to teach, not resentful, willing to use the wisdom that God has given him or her to share that wisdom with another in hopes that their lives might be um, better. Next verse. Opponents must be gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth. So when there's a disagreement in the body of Christ, we shouldn't dig in our heels and ramp up the level of argument, but make an appeal so that people can be brought out of their error and into a knowledge of the truth. Next verse, Rakish. And that they would come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. So it's very possible for us as believers to get ensnared into into foolishness for a season. But praise God for people who would care enough to come alongside and talk to us frankly, gently, respectfully, but with courage and with integrity and say, hey, Chris, come on, you can't be doing this. This is not, this doesn't honor God. I would like to illustrate this. Yeah, I got a little time. It's a very good thing, folks, that we've got the time right up there so that I not dawdle. But, for example, <laughs> I've had a conversation uh, about this with, uh, with Don, but think about some things in the Bible that are hard to understand. And we were singing three in one, right? Trinity. We have, we have a God is three persons. 
the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Now, each one of them is fully God. God the Father is God. God the Son is God. And God the Holy Spirit is God. But there's only one God. There's not three. And uh, so once the smoke starts coming out of your ears like it does with mine, it's like, how could this be? How could this be? It's easy to say, well, let's just boil it down. Let's just say there's just only one God and these three persons are just three different hats. Or we could say maybe there's three gods. You know, maybe there's God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. And maybe we actually have three gods going on up there. And uh, who, who, who can know? But the scripture tells us, the scripture tells us that each one of these statements, God is three persons, is true. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Father. The Father is not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not the Father. And Jesus and the Holy Spirit are distinct persons. There's communication between them. They're they're communicating and they're acting in different ways. Each of them, however, is fully God, but there's one God. So John chapter 1, verse 1. Rakesh, you got that? In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, what are you going to do with that? You humbly believe it. We accept that this is God's self-revelation of himself. If I tell you that I like the color blue more than I like the color brown, you could argue with me, but I know. (laughs) If God tells us that he is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that they are different persons, then I just pretty much have to say, I think you probably know this one. I'm not in a position, you know, to uh, inform him. No, 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 you're not. Uh, John 14, 26. But the advocate, this is Jesus. Jesus is saying, the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name. So now we have three people, right? Jesus is sitting there. He's saying to his men, the Father is going to send the Holy Spirit to you, and he will teach you all things, and he will remind you of everything that I have said to you. So So the Bible is very comfortable with this idea that we have one God, but this one God exists in three persons. But there was a gentleman named Sibelius who in the 200s AD thought that he could solve this problem by just saying, well, the Father is kind of a role and a manifestation of God. And the Son is another role and another manifestation of God. So we have have God... The Father as creator in the Old Testament, we have God as Jesus in the Gospels, and then we have God now as the Holy Spirit in building the church and changing lives. And, um, but the problem with that is, is that that was rejected by the church as heresy. And um, that got folded into the Trinitarian creeds of the church, the Nicene Creed and the Apostles' Creed, because they realized that although you might 
want to think of God that way, as just sort of changing manifestations, it completely distorts all of the communication in the Bible about their interaction with one another. And it also makes things like the death of Jesus Christ on the cross to the satisfaction of the Father who is upholding justice, that starts to collapse. Also, the understanding that God is love. God is love because God is a fellowship. There has always been love. There has always been delight. There has always been loyalty, always been love between the persons of the, commu- of the, of the uh, <coughs> excuse me, of the Trinity. And when I was in seminary, um, we were talking about what does it mean to be created in the image of God? Okay. We said mind, we have intelligence, we have emotions, and we have will. And we kind of left it at that. But think about this. When the Bible tells us that God created us in his image, there are two amazing things that are included in that passage that are completely left out of this idea that I have mind, I have emotions, and will. For crying out loud, my dog has a mind and emotions and will. You know, (laughs) that's not the image of God. But the Bible says that God made us female. He created us male and female in his image. Our masculinity and femininity and the union of the two in marriage are a replication, not in every respect, but in a significant respect with the union of the Trinity. In the Trinity, there are three and one. In a marriage, there are two and one. Not in the same sense, but a, a kind of a mirror, a kind of a mirror image. The Bible also says that God created humankind to rule over the earth in his place. So sovereignty, authority, uh, is also a part of this image of God in which we are created. And so even though in this world where authority relationships are often exploitive and unfair, in the Godhead, there's perfect authority and submission without depersonalization and without alienation. And uh, so that's a, a pretty amazing thing for us to try to replicate in our relationships. So, so we have the word of God giving us an understanding of the person and the character of God. And if we submit to him, we learn more about him. If we submit to the revelation of God about God, we understand God better. Next. What's the next verse? Or is that it? Okay. All right. All right. How about that? Um, Now, I... Let's see. Do I want to even go down this road? Let me... um, I didn't ask Rakesh to point us to Philippians chapter 4, but if you have it, uh, get it out in front of you. And I think I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to skip the one on marriage because uh, it's too much time and I don't want to blow all of the time on that. But we realize that our culture is redefining marriage. And they're redefining marriage 
uh, because they are uncoupled from uh, the knowledge that God has given us about it. But I would like to challenge you, um, and it's a challenge that I myself take up regularly, um, and it's in Philippians chapter 4. If we are going to submit ourselves to the Word of God, we need to let Him tell us how to live. But I don't know about you, but I am stubborn. And I am selfish. And left to myself, I am foolish. And so I need the Word of God to smack me in the face and tell me, Chris, get out of your funk and Get your eyes up on Jesus and live for crying out loud. You've been called. You've been reconciled to God. You've been gifted for service. You've been given a work to do. Come on. Get going. And stop sulking about this, that, or the other. So in chapter 4, there's a little mental health section here. And are we going to let God speak to us or not? Now, in chapter 4 begins with a little bit of context. There's an argument between two ladies in the church who are having a hard time getting along with one another. And if you, we all know how a bitter conflict between two people who are part of a group can throw the rest of us into turmoil. Oh, it's just not a picnic. And... Um, so in the midst of this, he comes up with this counsel in verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Now this is not a suggestion. This is not a recommendation. This is a command that no matter what is going on, we can and ought to rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice. Well, what are we doing when we rejoice in the Lord? I might have as I have discovered, much to my consternation and dismay, I did not set enough money aside for my taxes. And so I'm looking at this going, no, I thought I was ready, you know. And so <clears throat> now I'm going to have to make some adjustments, you know, to my plans <laughs> in order to uh, render under Caesar. And um, But whether or not you have made adequate provision for the, for the day of reckoning, rejoice in the Lord, right? Because he will help me no matter what kind of adjustments I need to make. So I can rejoice in the Lord, and I'll say it again, rejoice. Next verse. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Now, when I'm rejoicing in God, and I know he's near, I know I'm a beneficiary of his care. I know he is with me. So I can have a generosity toward those around me that I wouldn't normally have if I was just worried about myself. And so let your gentleness be evident to all. Don't be ramming around telling everybody how mad you are, dealing with those that you can abuse abusively, and then, you know, being... Uh, being nice to the people who can hurt you, we're, we're, we're to be gentle to everyone because God has given us enough to be generous to other people, even though we may feel that we're being squeezed. Next verse. Do not be anxious about anything. Oh, come on! 
Come on, that's unreasonable. <laughs> We're anxious all the time. This isn't going to work. That's not going to work. This plan is failing. That person is unreliable. No, no, no. So what is this verse? It is not a verse to humiliate us. I think it just simply says, if you're feeling anxiety, that's an invitation to prayer. And it's an invitation to an experience that far surpasses anxiety as a lifestyle. But in every situation, by prayer and petition, prayer is the larger um, term. Petition is the smaller term. Prayer, thanking the Lord, worshiping the Lord, loving God. Petition is more like, help me. (laughs) Help them. (laughs) Do something, Lord. (laughs) Okay, so prayer and petition. It's the whole relationship with God. It says, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. Now, wait a minute. When I'm anxious... I'm not thankful. So how am I supposed to do this? But as I grow in Christ, I understand that the Lord helps me to have a larger emotional range. I can have delight and sorrow at the same time. I can be anxious but grateful at the same time. Isn't that kind of an amazing thing? You know, but the more we trust him and walk through these perilous times, our knees can be knocking, but we're holding on to the father's hand and we're like, okay, I think I'm going to be okay. And, uh, and God helps us. He helps us through, right? So when we're anxious about things, then we pray and we start to thank God right away. Right away, thank you for hearing my prayer, Lord. I don't know how this is going to turn out, but I know you're going to be with me. I rejoice in you because you have you have not withhold, withheld even your own son, so I know you're going to be with me in this situation. So we can face uncertainty with, with more courage, with more confidence than we, ordinar- than we otherwise ordinarily would. And present your request to God. Next verse. Here it is. This is an experience that we cannot create for ourselves. This is an experience that God gives us. Not because he has to, but because he is willing. And a while back, I had to realize I can only lay hold, I can only receive what God is willing to give me. I can't pry anything out of his hand. I have to trust his generosity. So then why not fix my heart on his greatness, on his goodness? Why not rejoice in him and get to know his goodness so that then, without being demanding, without insisting that he bless me the way I want him to bless me, I can entrust myself to his generosity. So here's the assurance that we have. There's a lot in life that we don't understand. There's a lot in life that we can't figure out. But if we just let God tell us who he is, let God tell us what his purposes are, and then we follow this mental health piece, so that when we're getting a little squeezy, 
and a little afraid, we put our hopes in him. He will help us as the word of God informs us, renews us, refines our understanding. We will be prepared for every good work that he wants us to do. And when we're in situations that scare the daylights out of us, we can put our hope and our trust in him and realize that he will go through that with us and bring us through to the other side. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you have given us a word of truth that we can learn and help one another to understand better and then to encourage one another to live. Father, when we have discussions with one another about what's really right or not, give us gentleness and kindness and persistence so that we can help come around to the best understanding of your word. Help us, Lord, in our own moments of fear and trepidation to rejoice in you, to pray, to thank you even before we see the answers so that we might experience the peace of your presence with us. And Heavenly Father, thank you for the fellowship that we have together in the gospel. I pray, Heavenly Father, that you would bless this church and its work in the world and Campus Ambassadors and its work in the world. And Heavenly Father, we we just thank you for the fellowship that we have together in you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.